Well, good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. But before we get to that, I just want to say, Ava, awesome to see you up here. Woohoo! <laughs> Not just next generation, but the now generation as well. As a follow-up to Resurrection Sunday, I've selected this text from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is God's word to us this morning. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word this day with hearing, with understanding, Lord, and I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to be active among those who are gathered here in this moment, in this place, those who are watching online now or even at the future at a predetermined point by you. Lord, I pray for your Spirit to work, to take your truth, your word, to implant it deeply in our hearts and our minds, to take root and to grow and to produce faithfulness and fruitfulness so that we could live up to what you have called us to, to live up to who we are because of what Jesus has done. And Lord, as we pursue that and as you do your work within us, Lord, may we experience all that happens from that. Lord, may our questions about ourselves and our identity and our purpose, our place in this world be answered. Lord, may the struggles that we are burdened by with sin and with selfishness and with all of the other things of society, Lord, may those be put into perspective and taken away and conquered and overcome. Lord, for those of us who still hurt and ache because of the past or the present or our anxiety about the future, Lord, may we be healed, may we be comforted by the truth you speak over us. As always, Father God, I ask that my words not get in the way of your word, but that you work, that you speak, that you bring glory to yourself as your son Jesus is lifted up, and it's in his name that we pray, oh, Father God, amen. You may be seated. And I want to give a very special welcome to those who are joining with us on our live stream today. I want to say a very special hello, first off, uh, to Marvin and Debbie, who are, yes, they're there, they're not here, right? Marvin and Debbie, good to see you guys last week, and glad you're uh, joining in with us today. Love you guys, and hope to see you again real soon. And there's a whole host of others that join with us online as well. Remember, you can participate in today's service by texting in uh, in real time. Uh, comments, questions, please be nice. And prayer praises or prayer requests. If you are a first-time person texting in, we'd love to get a name to go with the number so we can pray for you and just maybe do some specific follow-up to help you grow spiritually. Glad you are with us today uh, or even at a later date on the recorded version. All right. 
Last week, Resurrection Sunday, Jesus dies for our sins, Jesus rises from the dead. That means our sins are forgiven and we have the gift of new life, eternal life. We get to go to heaven, right? That's it, game over, settled, done with. Now what? Man, this has taken forever. It is such a common desire. And it's also such a mistaken theology that that's where Christianity ends. Jesus died for our sins. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. We're good to go. Jesus rose from the dead. We get to have eternal life. We get to be with our heavenly Father forever. And so much of Western, American, European Christianity in the last few generations has been so focused on that. Brother, are you saved? If you died tonight and stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? How would you answer? That has been the evangelistic thrust for generations now. And we're missing something so important. Jesus didn't die for us to solely be forgiven. Jesus died so that sin would no longer be a barrier to relationship. The taking away of sin restores relationship. Jesus' victory over death not only gives us eternal life, but that eternal life starts now. And there is a long, for most of us, a very long sequence of life between being born again and our first and only death. So we've got a lot of work to do. Jesus didn't die just so that we could be forgiven. He didn't rise just so that we get to go to heaven at some time in the future. He died and rose again so that our lives now, day in and day out, every day, from here until that moment when God calls us home, will be infused with a new identity, a new purpose, a new mission, a new reality. You see, the forgiveness of our sins is the beginning of God's work within us. Now, yes, for some of us, God has a lot more work to do than others, but we're all works in progress. Salvation is the restoring of the individual relationship with God that's been broken by sin, but it's also the creation of a new race within humanity, those united by the blood of Jesus, as a point of technicality, yes, there is only one human race. The, the, this whole discussion on, on racism and racial division, it's, just, it's, it's semantically incorrect. It, it's, a, it's a real reality, yes, but it's a semantic uh, misstatement. Humans are one race because we have human blood in us, right? It doesn't matter the color of skin. It doesn't matter what continent we are born on or we live on. We are all human beings. That's why it's not just all lives matter, but every life matters because we are human creations of God. 
There's one race united by human blood. But in the work of God, there is another race within humanity created not by human blood, but by the blood of Jesus. And it is that blood that unites. It is that blood that brings us together as blood brothers and blood sisters. Even if our normal, original blood and all of its DNA and every other other thing that goes into what makes us us, it is overcome by the blood of Jesus The Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians that God's purpose was to create in in, in himself, in relationship with him, one new humanity out of the two. The, the, The old division was Jewish and Gentile, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The hostility of ethnic distinction, the hostility of perceived racial differences and division, that's all been eliminated by the blood of Jesus who unites all of us into one new humanity, one new people. So yes, there's still a division. There are those who are, who are covered, who are united by the blood of Jesus, and those who are outside of that. Hence, God's love and purpose and mission and evangelism and and the gospel, the good news, the welcoming in of those who were once outside or far off. But this new humanity that, that God has created through Jesus, this is what God has called us to. This is one of the best summary passages in all of the New Testament that explains who we are and what we are to be doing now that Jesus has forgiven our sins and he has conquered death for us. We are forgiven. We are given the gift of eternal life. Now we are to get busy. We have have work to do. We are to be the people of God in this world. And so the apostle Peter breaks it down with a little bit of a compare and contrast once you, once you were, but now you are. That's what I wanted to follow up with Easter. Because of the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, this is now who we are. We're not just saved. We're not just bound or destined for eternity. We are saved for a purpose. And we are bound for the mission of God in this world. Once... You, once we, were a people who had not received mercy. And every time there's good news, there's got to be a little bit of bad news, doesn't there? The bad news is this. Once we were a people who had not received mercy. The opposite of mercy is wrath. Not a fun word, not a great thing to think about, not a very popular topic nowadays the wrath of God. But it's important to keep things into perspective. It's not a popular subject, but it's vitally important to understand the absolute necessity of God to justly punish sin because of his nature as being perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and just plain perfect. God's holiness and righteousness and perfection 
makes sin an absolute abomination. It makes it unallowable in his presence and in his kingdom and in his realm. For God to not deal justly with sin, he would not be God. He would be some some cheap imitation, some weak caricature of what God is supposed to be. If sin is not serious, if sin is not dealt with, if he just lets, lets bygones be bygones and lets everything go and makes excuses, he's no longer God because he's no longer holy. He's no longer righteous. He's no longer perfect. And that is a God not worth believing in because it's a God who is not God. So yes, even with our faults and our failures and our sins and our struggles and our weaknesses, We need a God who is holy and perfect and righteous because that makes him God. The Apostle Paul also says in the book of Ephesians, all of us also lived among them at one time, the once you were's, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So once we were a people who had not received mercy but were destined for the wrath of God. And that's just simply judgment for our sin and our selfishness. The apostle Peter says, so once we were a people who had not received mercy but once we were also not a people. We were just scattered. We were divided. We were excluded from this relationship with God. That's a pretty dire state. So that lays the groundwork. That lays the groundwork for all the good news, all the important news, all the impressive news. That that's once we were, but the past is the past. But now you are. Now we are people who have received mercy. Oh, and thank God. God's gift of salvation is both gracious and merciful. It's two sides of kind of the same coin. Grace is God's actions, God's predisposition, and God's prerogative to extend to us that which we do not deserve, that which we could not earn. It's actually the opposite of what we deserve and what we could earn. God's grace is his, just his love and his forgiveness. This, this extending of himself, this offering of himself, that's the grace of God. But the grace of God also brings the gift of mercy. So God gives us what we don't deserve, but he withholds what we do deserve, and that is mercy. Mercy instead of things like condemnation and eternal separation. That's what God has given us. That's what he extended to us. Grace and mercy he gave us at the cross. Ephesians chapter two. Oh, so just, the book of Ephesians is amazing. It's probably my, maybe my second favorite book in the New Testament after Colossians. And that's because Colossians is, Ephesians is like Colossians on steroids. Colossians is like the Cliff Notes version, much better for me and my attention span. Ephesians is a little bit more expansive. 
But Ephesians chapter 2, just let these words from, from God's word soak in. But God. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love, that word is mega, because of the mega love that God has loved us with, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were once not receiving mercy and were not a people, when we were once walking in the ways of the wicked, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's gracious love, his offer of forgiveness, his mercy of withholding judgment and condemnation. That's the beauty and the power of what Jesus really means. But now we have received mercy. And the only proper response to receiving grace and mercy is worship, isn't it? Worship is, is it's, 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 re, it's release, it is relief, it is recognition of the goodness of God and the greatness of what he has done in spite of ourselves, in spite of what we have earned, in spite of what we deserve, in spite of all of the mess that we are, we simply worship. And, and worship is the lining, the head, the heart, and the mind with God's will, the body as well. Apostle Paul spells this out in the book of Romans, chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because God has been merciful to us, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not, be over, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because God is merciful to us, we respond in gratefulness. Because he is gracious to us, we respond with our adoration. Now we have received mercy in place of wrath. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus took the wrath of God for us. That's how we are saved. But now you are receivers of mercy, but now you are the people of God. That's a great identifier. That is a great marker. We are the people of God. We are not just the people of earth. We're not just humans. We're the people of God. Now, all human beings are created in the image of God, and as such, every human person is God's offspring. This is the image of God. This is the sanctity of human life. This is the, the imago Dei, the image of God that makes humans important and special and different from other living beings on this planet. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. That's why life is to be cherished and valued and respected. But only those who are born again by the Holy Spirit are the children of God, adopted into the family. 
as such belonging to God. We're, a cho- we're, we're the people of God, but we're also a chosen people. Now, this begins the first of, of four descriptors taken directly from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Four things that in the Hebrew Scriptures in God's revelation says, this is who you are as my people. This is to the Jewish people. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're my, you're my special possession. That moniker is now transferred to those in Christ. The, the same purpose, the same mission remains. It's, it's the same thread of redemption throughout the, the Old and the New Testaments, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures. But we're a chosen people. The Israelites were chosen by God's prerogative. And he even says that in Deuteronomy. I didn't choose you, Israelites, because you were the most numerous, you were the most powerful, you were the most beautiful. Anything else? He goes, I chose you because I chose you. That's like when a parent says, because I said so, right? You don't need a reason. It's simply parent-child relationship. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and you're going to accept it because that's just the way life is. The chosen people are now those who who have chosen Christ. Those who are followers of Jesus are the ones that God has chosen. We're also a royal priesthood. This is kind of flowery language. May sound a little bit intimidating because priesthood carries with it a lot of connotations in our culture that are not biblical, by the way. But every Christian is a member of the royal priesthood. A a priest is simply a mediator between God and people. A, A priest is one who serves people on behalf of God and serves God on, on behalf of people. Very reciprocal in that. But in Christianity, because of Jesus, there's only one mediator between God and mankind, and that is Jesus. And when we are called a, when we are called a royal priesthood, that means every Christian holds that place of priest to serve people on behalf of God and to serve God on behalf of people. Every Christian is called and gifted and empowered and placed in this world to serve God. He's given us the gifts. He's given us the calling. He's given us the purpose. We just need to get serving. But then there's that moniker, royal. Changes everything. As a royal priesthood, it means we are related to the king. We are children of the king. We're not merely citizens. We are children of the king most high. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Holy means set apart. In terms of God, it means perfect. In terms of humanity and us as people, it means maybe not perfect, but still set apart by God for a very special purpose. And we are a nation among the nations, a kingdom among the kingdoms. The church, big C, all Christians everywhere, all those who belong to God through faith in Jesus. 
is a kingdom within the kingdoms of this world. His holiness is seen and known as we implement his will in our lives. You remember that when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, it was your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God will not be enacted by legislation. The will of God will be enacted through the obedience of his people, his chosen people, his royal priesthood. That's how the will of God is done in this world. It's done in our lives. It's done in our actions. It's done in our efforts. It's done in our work. And then the idea is for the will of God to be implemented more and more in this world as more and more people become those who have received mercy, those who are now the people of God, those who are also chosen, those who are also now a, a, a royal priesthood, those who are a, now a holy nation. That's who we are, living on mission. We are God's special possession. This means God has created us and he has redeemed us. He has bought us back. So he has ownership. Ownership shows his sovereignty. The apostle Peter uses that that analogy, that terminology in his second letter. The sovereign Lord who bought them, Jesus. Sovereignty means solely in charge, all-powerful. We are the special possession of God on high, the most high God, the one who alone is truly sovereign and in charge. And ownership inspires obedience. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're instructed to glorify God in our bodies because we were bought with a price. For the most part, the more something costs us, the more precious we treat it, correct? You know, unless it's like a race car, we're gonna go out and you're just gonna tear that, tear that sucker up because you, you gotta use it. But most things in our homes we buy that are more expensive. You know, our, our, one of you and I, we just, we just you know, our, our TV of, 15 years or whatever it is died and so we had to we had to upgrade our tv you know and so of course we upgrade it's a beautiful tv it's you know it's got all these amazing things you know jordan doesn't have to get up and go change the channel anymore for us and all of that not that he ever did just teasing just want to make sure he's still awake and uh <laughs> i'm just I, i'm just messing with you my apologies i'll buy no i'll buy you lunch today though there we go <clears throat> But this, this new TV we have, is, it's nice and new and pristine, and so you're trying to set things up, and you know, everything's like voice-activated and all this kind of stuff, and it's like, I can operate it. We haven't used all the bells and whistles, but it's set apart. It's on, it's on the entertainment center. It's now special and privileged, and I don't want to mess with it too much because if I mess with it too much, I'm going to mess it up, Right? I already drive Jordan crazy because I always push the wrong buttons on the remote. Why do they make the remote so incredibly complicated? All right. Yes, I'm in my 50s. I'm revealing my age on that. But when something is valuable, we protect it. We set it apart. We cherish it. 
If you have, if you have perhaps some expensive works of art or some, some, some special plates or silverware, those things, are, they're precious, they're valuable, and they only get used on the right occasions, or that, that set purpose. In, in the meantime, then they are, they are protected, they're put away, they're, they're, they're cleaned, and they're taken care of nicely. Because the, the, the value of, of, of owning that is so precious, we pay attention to it. And so the idea there is that because we are owned by God, we are precious and valuable. Therefore, we are to obey what he says, to, to have our bodies, our hearts, and our minds flourish, to not be burdened and broken by sin, but instead obeying the one who owns us because we're God's special possession. And he has already treated us so well by giving us grace and giving us mercy and calling us into this relationship and giving us this purpose. Now you are God's special possession who's been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. Darkness is biblical imagery for both intellectual ignorance about God and behaviors, behaviors that reject God's laws, both the natural law and the written law, rejects God's will also, which is revealed in his word. From the book of Colossians, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Many times in the course of listening to people as they, 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 they share their, their testimonies, their stories of, of how they've come to faith and what life was like before Jesus, there is, there's, there's one specific word that it's not in every, in every story, but it pops up again and again, or at least the sentiment of it pops up again and again. And it's like this, oh, that was a dark time in my life. But do you mean, we live in California, does that mean the sun didn't shine? No, the sun shine. it's bright, it's light out. But we, we categorize a time of, of ignorance or disobedience of, of, of sin, we, def, we just automatically describe it as a time of darkness. And then the gospel is seeing the light, seeing the light of God's love, God's life. God's preferred way to live. Jesus is the light of the world, and in his light is life and love. And it's such a better way to live. Once again, the Apostle Paul from the book of Ephesians, for once you were once darkness. I love how he doesn't say, for once you were in darkness. He just says, no, you were darkness. You were fully enmeshed in all that that entails. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Since Jesus died and rose again, this is our identity. This is our mission. This is our calling. This is what we are to be about as the people of God, as those who have received mercy as those who are chosen and holy and a priesthood and a special possession, this is what we're called to do. Live as God's light. As Peter says, 
Once you were, but now you are, so that. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. This is a life purpose for every Christian and every church, small c, every congregation, every assembly of Christians, regardless of the name on the door. Every Christian, every church is to declare the praises of him who gives mercy and who saves. So Christian, this is your purpose, to declare the praises of him who has saved you. And that's the, the, first, the first praise you declare is accepting that. It's accepting his grace and his mercy in Jesus. The greatest testimony to the gospel is not the truthfulness of the historical events. The greatest testimony is a life changed by faith in Jesus. Because that is irrefutable. That is unassailable. People can choose to not believe it, but they cannot contradict what you have experienced in Jesus. And yes, our faith is based on historical fact. It is based on truth. It is backed up by logic and reason and consistency and all of those kinds of things. The book of Revelation, those who are, those who are honored are those who overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus saves. How do we know? Because of the testimony. I am the one who is saved. So declare the praises of him. So if you have not yet accepted, if you have not yet received that mercy, if you're destined for wrath, now is the time to receive the grace that's in Jesus. You can fill it out on your connection card to say, I need to give my life to Christ. I am ready to confess my faith. I am ready to get baptized, whatever it is. Or talk to me or a trusted Christian friend right after our service here in a few moments. But lastly, for all of us, we are to declare God's praises. That is our daily mission. Declaring God's praises by our words, our work, and our worship. Worship is not just Sunday mornings when we assemble together. Worship is a disposition of the heart that is demonstrated tangibly every day as we live in the Lord's light. But our words are important. People need to know the hope that we have in Jesus, the faith that we have in Jesus, the struggles that we have that we are looking to Jesus to help us overcome. Those are very important words. But our works as well. Good deeds, yes. Acts of service, acts of compassion, acts of mercy, acts of care, extending the will of God from heaven to earth. That's our mission, along with our worship.